0: So, good morning. I am actually doing an interview today. If you have been listening over the past couple of weeks, I did the episode about POW cemeteries and I told you about how I first kind of was put on the radar about POW cemeteries. So now having done an episode both about POW cemeteries during World War One and World War Two, and having talked about Andersonville last week, I wanted to bring you an interview with a young lady who has some first-hand experience with cemeteries and army bases. So I'm going to go ahead and let my guest introduce herself.
1: Hi, my name is Hillary Burt, and I worked for the Fort Campbell Cultural Resources Office for about five and a half years, and I was in charge of managing their 133 known cemeteries.
0: Okay, so again, if you listen to the episode, the the first episode I did about POWs, I talked about the fact that uh, Hillary and I actually also used to work together. So Hillary was one of the archaeologists that I worked with, and we only worked together in the office for a couple of months. Um,
1: Yeah, yeah, I think it was just a couple of months. (laughs) I think I was there from, like, September through November, yeah, it was, like, Two months, maybe. We, we
0: did have a lot of fun. Um, we did have an epic night when we were out in the field. We found the best dive bar in America's Georgia, and we, uh, we had a grand old time that night. Uh, so Hillary was a lot of fun to work with, and we technically still work for the same company. We just never see each other because we're both remote from one another. But uh, I also mentioned in that episode that Hillary and I discovered that we had sort of an unexpected connection in our past where we had past uh, crossed paths and uh, never knew about it until much, much later. But so before Hillary goes into her experience with the Army, I want her to tell me a little bit about her educational experience, how she got interested in cemeteries, how she got interested in archaeology, all of that fun stuff.
1: Yeah, so I was born and raised in uh, Alabama and uh, went to school at the University of Alabama, Roll Tide. And My academic advisor for my whole time, I got my bachelor's and my master's from the UA Anthropology Department. My advisor there was Dr. Ian Brown, who um, those of you listening to this podcast have probably heard that name before. He is uh, definitely a, a big name in, in cemetery research. So he was kind of the one that inspired me to pursue uh, cemeteries in my, in my master's thesis. And, I mean, even before working with Dr. Brown, I guess cemeteries had always fascinated me. Um, I, I even have a picture in my office of a beautiful cemetery that I visited while I was studying abroad in Ireland. Um, it's just always been... a a spot, a a cultural landscape that has interested me. So uh, getting to do uh, cemetery research for my master's thesis was perfect, and it had the added benefit, since I am an archaeologist, that I didn't actually have to do any digging. So that was pretty cool, too. And, uh, yeah, so my master's focused on, I, I looked at a sample of cemeteries in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and I was looking at kind of four different cultural groups and how their cemetery practices their cemetery features kind of differed so I was looking at um, predominantly uh, white and black populations in Tuscaloosa County as well as uh, urban versus rural cemeteries Uh, I called these cemeteries in Tuscaloosa more urban I mean that's not a big city but in, in Alabama terms, you know, it's a, it's a big happening spot. So the, I found some very interesting ways that families were signifying and, you know, kind of uh, connected to one another in either
0: family plot. That's Luna. In case you yes. can hear somebody in the background, <laughs> yes. we, we do have a feline visitor on the interview. That, that's Luna. She has lots to say about cemeteries apparently. Um, uh, but yeah,
1: so I was looking at family plots in white and black cemeteries in Tuscaloosa and found some very interesting connections there. Uh, my, my theory was that because of the great migration that happened during the, the 20th century, a large, uh, portion of the African-American population in the southeastern United States immigrated or migrated uh, to the Midwest, cities like Chicago, Detroit, uh, lots of different factors, you know, uh, the mechanization of farming, the Great Depression, tenant farming, all of that, and with, you know, new mechanization and jobs in the Midwest and factories and stuff like that large numbers of African Americans, you know, left that area, and I, I theorized that because of that, um, you had more of an emphasis on the community that you could see in African American cemeteries. You didn't see as many family pots, you know, signifying your, you know, your immediate family, you know, your family name. It was much more focused on the community than the immediate family, and I found the opposite in white cemeteries, um, particularly white urban cemeteries compared to white rural cemeteries. They had a lot more family plots and, you know, some of that comes down to just acreage, you know, a lot of the cemeteries in like Evergreen. I don't know if you know Evergreen Cemetery right outside of Bryant Denny stadium. Yes. Did a lot of work in that beautiful cemetery. Um, But yes, that was what my, my college research focused on. And then I was lucky enough to be offered a job at the Fort Campbell Cultural Resources Office when I finished with grad school. They were very interested in my uh, experience and knowledge working with cemeteries uh, academically. And that kind of catapulted me into cultural resource management
0: with the Army. Which I think all of that's very interesting. And it's something that I, as somebody who does publish and does a lot of research into cemeteries. I think it's something that, frankly, is not talked about enough. And long-time listeners to my podcast know that I am very critical. We don't need more Carver studies from the 1700s. They have been studied to death. And as beautiful as that stuff is, I think that there is so much to be learned in terms of analyzing cemeteries and looking at different aspects of cemeteries that can tell us a lot about social history and that's one of the reasons i think that your thesis is particularly fascinating because it's a way that we can quantify things that we might not otherwise be able to do sure we have census records sure we can look at places like i mean the one that's coming to mind is st louis and you know sort of the slum clearances that happen there and the push towards public housing but looking at this where you have a cemetery, which is a pretty unique piece of research, it's something that doesn't change. It's very, it's very standard. Looking at how settlement patterns change because of cemeteries, I think that's fascinating. It really is.
1: Yeah, that, that was something that, that always drew me in. I, I think one of the things to, to get back to what you know just draws me to cemeteries is that, like you said, they are unique and every cemetery is unique. There is no one cemetery that is exactly like another. And it's because for so many people, you know, 99% of individuals, when you pass on, your grave is all you leave behind. You know, your your family, your your material possessions, your house, that's all going to go to somebody else. But Nobody's gonna get your grave, nobody's gonna get your grave marker. So that's why it's so important
0: to protect those places and to learn whatever you you can from them. Yeah, no, so my my last episode in kind of in between all the POW stuff, um, I I dropped an episode about pet cemeteries, and it was so interesting to look at how the cultural change and the shift towards pet cemeteries coincided with the rise of the aspca and this push towards you know like treating animals with dignity and not abusing them and how the way that we care for things after they die reflects the way that we should be treating people in life and that's a correlation i think that people don't have and i had somebody ask me last week they said well like it just seems like cemeteries stand in the way of progress well if, if we're forgetting our history that quickly and we're not respecting the basic dignity of human life, it's it's kind of hard to call things progress.
1: Yeah, I, I completely agree with you there. There's, there's always a place for cemeteries. There always has been, and there always will need to be.
0: Absolutely, and I mean, I, if not, I'm gonna go out of business in this podcast really quickly. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about Fort Campbell. And I mentioned Fort Campbell when I did my POW episode very briefly, but tell us where it is. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so uh, Fort Campbell is a U.S. Army
1: installation that was founded in 1941 and is still an active Army installation. It's the home of the 101st Airborne Division. For those of you who have watched Band of Brothers, uh, the 101st played a, a big role in all of that drama, uh, so that is is where they do all of their training. It's a huge installation, and I'm actually, uh, I, I work uh, with multiple Army installations now with my current d- job as a GIS specialist, and as far as uh, size of installations, Fort Campbell is one of the largest at 111,000 acres of, of size, and the majority of that installation is comprised of training areas, so other than the contonment area, for those of you who have been on an Army installation, the cantonment is the more city part of, a, of an army base, where you've got your schools, your your grocery stores, all of your administrative offices, all of that. Um, outside of that are the training areas where there are ranges and the soldiers actually uh, do their training. So the uh, 133 cemeteries that I worked with on Fort Campbell were most of those, 99% of those, were in the undeveloped training areas. So uh, Fort Campbell is very unique in that, you know, 99% of those 111,000 acres have pretty much been left alone since the army moved in, in, in 1941, aside from military training. So that is why there are so many historic cemeteries that are left there. And, um, they were just kind of left as I like to call it a snapshot in time. Once the army moved in, everyone was kicked out, um, Uh, Some people got to choose if they wanted to actually maintain the rights to their cemeteries there um, or if they wanted to uh, move their loved ones, their ancestors, off uh, Fort Campbell into neighboring cemeteries in the cities of, I'm sorry, uh, Clarksville, Tennessee. So Fort Campbell sits on the border of Tennessee and Kentucky. I actually lived in Clarksville, Tennessee. That's the Tennessee side of the post. And then there's Hopkinsville, Kentucky, on the kentucky side so uh, they they would move individuals to those cemeteries if the army knew that they would be developing a particular part of the base and there was a cemetery there uh, people didn't have a say they would automatically move those people if they were going to be developing that area there's also large swaths of the installation that are what's known as impact areas where people don't go, that's where ammunition is being fired into that that area. Any cemeteries in those areas that they had planned out were also moved off post. Um, so I, I would say that the Army did a fairly good job, at, at least with Fort Campbell. I can't speak to any other installations, but at least as far as Fort Campbell goes, I think the Army did a, a decent job of coming in and making sure the cemeteries were, they knew where they were, that they were marked, that they were on the land acquisition map that they made up with all of the property owners and you know what acres they bought from who. If there was a cemetery, <coughs> excuse me, if there was a cemetery on the property, they, they typically knew about it. And um, they, they were staked off uh, with stakes and chains to help protect them from any military training exercises. That might happen and i was actively working with individuals in the surrounding communities uh to you know find ancestors that were buried somewhere on fort campbell a lot of our cemeteries were on you know find a grave that people had had entered in and um, i also worked with uh people on post civilians and uh families i worked with a few eagle scout groups to uh do cemetery beautification projects where they were working on uh, improving the cemeteries. Uh, Unfortunately, army-wide, there's not a lot of money to help manage these cemeteries, but everyone definitely does whatever they can to help preserve those very special places.
0: And I think that this is... And again, if you're a long-time listener, you know that last summer I did a couple of episodes where I talked about the TVA in cemeteries, I talked about the creation of the Quabbin Reservoir up in Massachusetts, and there are different ways that different organizations handle this. Obviously, with Campbell being founded in 41, it was a response to World War II. And having talked about POW cemeteries recently, I talked about how a lot of this, it all happened very quickly. And so, to me, I'm surprised that something that happens so quickly, there's such an urgent need, suddenly the country is going to war, that they were quite as well organized as they were.
1: Yeah, um, I I agree with you. Uh, Yeah, originally, Fort Campbell was, as so many installations were, like you said, they went up in a real hurry during World War II. Uh, Originally, it was called Camp Campbell, and it was just supposed to be a temporary thing. Uh, So, when the Army came in, initially in 1941 and was acquiring property uh, most of the residents thought that they would eventually get to come back once the war was over it wasn't actually until the 1950s that the US Army decided that they wanted to make it a permanent uh, installation but yeah uh, a lot of people had to move in a real big hurry Uh, there were I would say that there were issues with landowners who maybe didn't think that they got the money that they deserve for their property because they didn't have a choice. You know, the army comes in, you know, eminent domain. This is our property. Now here's your money. It's not like they could argue and say, no, I want more money. You you can't have my little 10 acre, you know, tenant farm over here, U S army. Um, they, they had to go. So I know there was a lot of strife and issues with people who maybe thought that they didn't get compensated fairly for their property. Um, but other than that I, as far as the cemeteries go i do think that the army has done everything at least with fort campbell that the army has done everything that they could do to to help preserve those places and to know where they are um i that's the most important thing is where are the cemeteries um and i i call it the fort campbell 100 you know the known cemeteries because uh, every year, additional acres are, are undergo archaeological survey. N- the entirety of the post has not undergone a, a phase one archaeological survey to identify all the archaeological sites and possible cemeteries that are on there. So um, with every passing year, we're, you're, you're learning more and more, and there could very well be additional you know, unmarked cemeteries that have been found since my tenure there. Um, and when those are found, uh, the army always errs on the side of caution, and I know you know this archaeologically, when we're dealing with cemeteries, we don't dig, um, and especially uh, army cemeteries, you don't want to be digging and uh, I don't know if you guys are aware, uh, GPR cannot be performed on any Army installations anywhere. It's a it's a safety issue because of any unexploded ordnance that might have been buried over time or landed somewhere. Uh, that, yeah, UXO training, take that every year. <laughs> you know, that's, that was always important to know. Uh, but, yeah, so we definitely had some unmarked cemeteries on Campbell where I was like, hmm. Is it a cemetery or is it where, you know, half a dozen dudes dug some foxholes on a, you know, east-west axis? I don't know. We're not going to dig and we're not going to do GPR. We're not going to probe because of the the UXO safety issue. So the Army would err on the side of caution, call it a cemetery, and, you know, make it a a no-dig area. You cannot train here. You cannot dig here. You cannot build here um there they did run into issues where over the course of certain projects they would actually have to do mitigation and perhaps move um individuals who were buried depending on the the size and scope of the project that didn't actually happen at any point when i was there Um, but that definitely happened a lot in the the 70s you mentioned the pow cemetery we did have a American civilian buried there, his name was William Dennis, uh, he had been moved from a cemetery in Montgomery County, Tennessee, for construction, and got moved into the POW cemetery. I'm not really sure why they thought that was, you know, what, what should happen. I guess they're like, hey, we, this is our army cemetery, we can do whatever, whatever we want with it. Um, but like I said, they, they tried to keep good track of who was where, and, and what was going on, Like I said, it's all about preservation and making sure that that those areas are preserved.
0: And to me, that's it's so contrary to what we do. And Hillary works in cultural resource management, so she knows this. Outside, we try so hard and we put so much effort into trying to establish this is actually a cemetery and the hope is that you're going to find out that it's not a cemetery and that you're going to be able to do something so all of those things gpr and probing and surface stripping all of those things that we do are to try to prove that it isn't and so to me it's it's a little exciting as a cemetery person to know that the army is like you know what? we can't prove it but we're going to err on the side of caution and they take those extra steps because i think that the as upsetting as it is to hear that you know, they, they did have to take the land by eminent domain and it's never an ideal situation, but knowing that there is an awareness and that they are trying to even, you know, post ex facto, like after everything happened, stop more damage from happening. There's something to be said for that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, that is, and even, and it's not just, uh, you know, when Fort Campbell was established, it's, it's Fort Campbell today. Like, you know, That was the whole reason that the Cultural Resources Office existed, not just for the cemeteries. We also had thousands of pre-contact and uh, historic archaeological sites on the installation as well that we would be managing for. And some of those were eligible for listing on the National Register. This is another interesting thing about the Army. Um, No structures, you know, you're not going to have structures, houses, sites on the National Register, they don't want them on there. They just call them eligible for listing. Um, the Army, like, doesn't really want to go through that that extra effort to actually have them listed because then once they are, that adds a whole lot more red tape for what they can actually do with it. But it doesn't really matter as far as management goes because if an archaeological site or a historic home is you know, eligible for listing, they're going to manage it, you know, as if it were, you know, on the register. We did have, I think we had four historic homes that existed before the Army moved in in 41. Um, Those were really the only residences that the Army allowed to remain standing. Every other house structure um, from, you know, big plantation homes to little tenant farming shacks, They just blitzed. They bulldozed. They sent engineering units out there. Just take care of it, knock it down, clear the land. You know, this is going to be used for training. Um, So really, the only areas of of that culture that they allowed to remain were the cemeteries.
0: Which is again, one of the reasons that I think that cemeteries are so important because that's so much of that landscape no longer exists. And this is one of the things I wanted to ask you when we're talking about the folks that were moved off this installation, give us an idea, like what type of folks are, like, are we talking black folks, white folks, farmers, you know, what, what type of community existed prior to the base moving in? Cause obviously having an army installation changes the demographics of an area.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. So, uh, as I said, uh, Fort Campbell is is in a very rural area right on the border of Tennessee and Kentucky it's in kind of middle Tennessee Uh, the largest city near there is Clarksville Tennessee which is about an hour away from Nashville so that's kind of the kind of the part of the country that we're talking about here Um, there were no cities on uh, Fort Campbell before the army moved in it was all very rural the majority of the population were farmers they again no real big cities, just very small um, communities that that existed there. There were white people, there were black people, um, there were definitely you know richer landowners, some of whom you know just owned property in that area, but actually lived in the bigger cities like Clarksville, Tennessee, or Hopkinsville, Kentucky. Um, And there were definitely some, some large, you know, beautiful structures. As I said, we did have some historic homes that were, you know, eligible for listing that were just gorgeous. Um, but I'd say, you know, definitely like 95% of the population was just poor farmers. Um, majority were, were tenant farmers, uh, because when, uh, the army moved in as, as I'm sure a lot of, you know, uh, World War II was really what got the U.S. out of the Great Depression. So when the Army came in in 1941, that area was still very much depressed. Uh, you know, there, there was no e- economic boom. People were living in 1941, majority of them, as they had been in 1841. Um, nobody, uh, majority of the homes didn't really have electricity, running water, automobiles, those were all really things that the majority of the population did not have at that time when the Army was coming in, which is another reason that I think makes Fort Campbell so special, is all that modernization, you know, the commer- the commercialization and that modernization that happened after World War II, you know, in the 1940s and 1950s. That didn't happen at Fort Campbell. That, that was all stopped. So when the Army came in, like I said, the very poor population who who definitely needed help and you know getting kind of compensated for their property and getting kicked off and and sent somewhere else i'm sure must have been a very stressful situation for for those people who were living there at that time
0: no, and I think it's also interesting to look at from the perspective of, and I've, I've talked about this on the podcast, that there is definite differences in how cemetery settlement patterns happen depending on where you are in the United States. And just the nature of southern life at the time and farming lent itself more to these remote rural family cemeteries. And that explains how, I mean, granted, 111,000 acres is an enormous piece of land. But the fact that there are so many cemeteries as a direct result of that comes from this settlement pattern of the fact that you have these small farms and it's definitely reflective of that. And I would imagine not just the land used and what was going to be happening there, but that also probably dictated who chose to have their cemeteries moved, who didn't, maybe the more prominent families elected to do that. And that, that makes a lot of sense. So, walk me through a little bit about, you know, day-to-day, what maintenance and upkeep of these cemeteries looked like on Fort Campbell.
1: So, uh, day-to-day, as as you said, so many cemeteries, and a lot of them were very remote. I mean, there, we had a handful of cemeteries. You'd probably have to hike for a mile and a half from the nearest road before you actually got to the cemetery. There were no trails or anything like that to get out there so as far as maintenance goes uh, because so many of the cemeteries were so small and and remote um, other than you know having the the grass mowed once maybe twice a year during the summer that would be about it Um, they would try and again protect them from any military training or anything going out in those training areas in the woods Um, to know hey there's a cemetery here but as far as maintenance goes it was kind of just just kind of maintaining the grass a lot of the cemeteries were in heavily wooded areas didn't even have grass so i did work with the um the department of public works to figure out where they needed to kind of focus their maintenance concerns on if your cemetery doesn't have grass you don't need to be paying money to send a mowing crew out there to, to, to mow it um so that that was a lot of my day-to-day was just getting um familiar with all of those cemeteries and all of their individual needs that that they that they needed i did work with um, some local families to actually have new grave markers installed we had i worked with one family where uh, we had a, a very old concrete grave marker that was severely eroded. I mean, you could still, you know, read the, the name and, and dates and stuff like that, but it was severely eroded and had part of it missing. It looked like maybe a tree had fallen on it at some point in the past and, uh, the tree had been removed, but the, the broken marker remained. And, uh, I had, a a woman that I worked with to actually have the cemetery marker replaced. Um, The army would replace markers if something were damaged over the course of military training, or if they were doing some sort of construction, essentially if the army broke it, they would, they would fix it. Uh, We did do a grave marker replacement of the civilian marker in the Fort Campbell uh, POW cemetery, because it also had, been broken by a tree fall and um the top half of the marker was completely missing and in all of our databases you know we had no idea who this individual was and it wasn't until we found a picture from a you know a cemetery enthusiast from the 1970s had done a big survey of the cemeteries on campbell and from her photograph before the marker was broken we were able to recreate that marker and um and give uh, that individual a, a new, beautiful uh, grave marker that looked much better in, in the cemetery, and because that was the the only army cemetery. So that was the only cemetery on Fort Campbell that the army actually created. The other, you know, 130 or so cemeteries, those were all established before the army moved in. So, And because of that, because that was an Army-created cemetery, the the entire U.S. military, not just Fort Campbell, not just the Army, um, any cemeteries created by the DoD on DoD property have different management standards compared to historic cemeteries that existed on the property before it became DoD.
0: That's a very important distinction. And I was going to ask if there was any post cemetery for people who are posted at Campbell. So there is not one, correct? There's not a base cemetery. No, there is not a base
1: cemetery. The only army cemetery on the installation is the POW cemetery. And that's actually um, a closed POW cemetery. So because it's a closed cemetery and also because it's a POW cemetery, there are also different management standards between that kind of cemetery versus a cemetery like Arlington you know, where you're actively, you know, burying. and larger and like Fort Bragg, I believe has an active cemetery where they are actually actively burying people, um, that they do that. The management standards, again, for those very different yes. from a closed, you know, historic POW cemetery. So yeah, Campbell didn't really have to, um, deal with any of that. Um, one interesting thing that is, that was, uh, working kind of at the end of my tenure there and is still going on, from my, my, I visited Fort Campbell uh, in May of this year. They are working to repatriate their NAGPRA remains. Oh, from, wow. Um, all of the pre-contact sites where, you know, human burials were excavated on Fort Campbell. Of course, if any of you are familiar with cultural resource management, we do not do that anymore. We do not <laughs> dig up Native American burial sites. That is not what we do. We got a bad rap back in the day. Um, but, uh, yeah, back in the day, they did. So um, Fort Campbell did have to manage for that and comply with uh, NAGPRA rules and regulations. So the once now that all of those remains, I, I worked to catalog them. We worked with a uh, osteologist at the core uh, to figure out how many individuals we, we actually had. And now I believe, last I heard, I'm not sure if this is the final say, but last I heard, I think they're gonna be working with the tribes to rebury those remains in the POW cemetery, since that is the only army managed cemetery. And um, it's in an area of post that is highly accessible. It's highly visible. Uh, They recently did something at Fort Bragg where they did the same thing with their NAGPRA remains. They repatriated them in their army cemetery and the VA installed uh, a marker to the unknown. So I think that's also the plan for Fort Campbell.
0: That's wonderful to hear too, because there is, and I did a whole month about uh, Native American burials and I talked about NAGPRA at the very beginning of it, but it's very difficult. I think sometimes when you are so far separated that the tribes don't necessarily know what to do. And as long as, I think that everyone is in accord. That to me is something that would be perhaps the ideal situation because obviously these remains have been removed. We don't even necessarily know the circumstances of all of them. It's the way that it is the most respectful and most probably temperate way that we can do this. And also it's, if people do visit a base cemetery, it's going to be the POW cemetery. So I think it's the best way to make it visible and to do it in a respectful way. I, I completely agree with you. And yes, it, it is like you
1: said, if people are going to visit a cemetery on Fort Campbell, it's going to be the POW cemetery. We uh, installed signs uh, and the POW cemetery is also in the Fort Campbell Clarksville based historic district. Uh, Fort Campbell does have an entire historic district. It's not listed on the register, but it's eligible. (laughs) Um, During the Cold War, they they actually manufactured nuclear weapons on Clarksville Base. So a lot of the buildings were actually buried underground so that any Soviet spy planes that were flying over couldn't tell where the important buildings were. Um, It was very secret, very hush-hush. It was located on an Army installation, but it was run by the Navy, and there were also Marines that guarded it. So it was it was a very big operation. And for as luck would have it, the uh, POW cemetery is within that historic district. It's not really a component of the historic district because the uh, POW cemetery was established uh, in, 19, I believe the earliest burial was in 1944. Um, so it was used from 44 to 45. Clarksville Base wasn't really established until much later um, during the Cold War in like the 1950s, but it is located in that district and it is part of the Clarksville Base uh, historic driving tour that we put together where we installed some interpretive panels uh, throughout the district to kind of show people what the different structures are that they're seeing, what they would have been used for, um, when Clarksville Base was in operation. And there's also an interpretive panel at the, the POW cemetery as well to let people know, hey, yes, we had P- German, mainly German, some Italian POWs on Fort Campbell that were there. Uh, they, they had their own PX. They had their own little movie theater. It's like they had their own little community. Uh, so when so many men you know, left the area to go fight in, in Europe and, and other places... Uh, the POWs were there to they would actually kind of uh, you know farm them out as laborers to the local farmers who needed help you know they needed people out to help them you know harvest their grow and harvest their crops so the the German POWs were there to kind of fill that void Um, and uh, yeah I think uh, actually Clarksville Tennessee has a very teeny tiny German population. It's because some of the POWs that were kept there during the war liked it so much they wanted to come back afterwards. Um so and and as I said, I think that also goes to to show that the army is is maintaining that cemetery. It's maintaining that that cultural imprint that they have left. It is a highly visible area. It's part of our, you know, part of that Campbell uh, driving tour and we the army does want for people to know they want that there is outreach happening you know for these cemeteries and not just the cemeteries but you know now we're getting to a point where the stuff that the army has built is eligible for listing on the national register you know so it's it's combining all of that the the culture that was there before the army came in and the culture that's there now
0: No, and that, that was one of the things I was kind of curious about because when I was doing the initial research for my POW episode, almost every army base that has a POW cemetery, they make it very visible, they have information, they have a list of the burials. And I guess my impression was, and I have not spent a lot of time on army bases, I think I've only been on an army base once in my life, that they are not for civilians, but it seems like there is a very active attempt to, you know, they want people to come and visit, they want yeah. people to learn about the history, and it's very accessible, which is kind of exciting.
1: Oh, oh, it is. And actually, I um, I worked with some individuals in the Clarksville, Tennessee, Tennessee Idol Vice Club, which was like a German club that they had. Um, every year on Memorial Day, you know, we have a very big cultural tradition, Memorial Day, you go to your... Your veteran burials, you go to your veteran cemeteries and you put American flags, you know, on the graves. That is something that that you know most DoD cemeteries are are doing. So uh, I worked with them to instead of install American flags on their graves because they are German POWs. Uh, they actually got German flags on their grapes for Memorial Day and then our American civilians got American flags. So yeah, I, I think the community was was very involved and very aware of of that cemetery and th- like I said, the army, you know, there there's always that there's not always the ability to do that community outreach because you know, you do cultural resource management, you know, every all these projects, everything get, kind of gets in the way of the day-to-day because you always have to put the mission first it's all about the training but you know if if possible you always want to do that outreach you always want the community to know um, that 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 is there and actually um, whenever there is something that's that's kind of lost due to army construction be it a road or building a new range sometimes sites and and even cemeteries do get destroyed and when that happens there's mitigation to to kind of make up for that loss. Um, so as part of the the outreach, uh, Campbell also put out actually a a book. I should I should show it to you later of of the cultural history of Fort Campbell um, before the army came in, including there's there's a little um, bit in the book about some of the cemeteries as well. So yeah, that that outreach is is always there, wanting the public to know, um, and You know, we hope that we can just have that happen, you know, just because it's Earth Day and the kids from the local, you know, the installation schools want to come and learn about archaeology or, you know, environmental protections and all that. Like, yeah, that's cool. But, you know, now there's actually literature out there for, you know, local libraries, local schools to know, hey, there were people here on Fort Campbell before it was an army installation here. Here's their story.
0: And I think it's very significant, too, that there is not just an office there that's handling it, but it seems like there is a huge push for documentation, for having as as much documentation of the material culture as you possibly can, both, you know, from pre-contact all the way on up. And as somebody in cemeteries, I'm a huge advocate, and I think that Find a Grave and Billions of Graves and all, all of these websites they have done so much for documentation because the fact is, things happen. You know, storms happen and tree limbs fall on graves. You know, you know a car can crash through a fence of a cemetery and destroy a grave. Having this photo documentation is so important. Mm-hmm. And I really like that they are pushing for that as well. And like you said, you were able to replace some graves that you might not have even know what they looked like because people had this documentation. Now, you had mentioned the concrete marker earlier. The majority of these cemeteries, how would you classify the markers in them? Are they kind of handmade vernacular? Were they store-bought like Sears and Robux? All of the above.
1: All of the above. Um, and it's, it's because, you know, in, because the installation is so large, you, you had the whole spectrum of that culture at that time. So you had the rich and you had the poor. Um, I'd say if, as far as the more elaborate markers go, we definitely had some very elaborate small family cemeteries um, that would have, you know, probably been located on that landowner's property, you know, relatively close to, to wherever they were dwelling. And then, you know, you go, a, you know, a few, you know, a mile this way and it's just a bunch of unmarked graves, you know, so it, we, Campbell definitely runs the gambit of everything, Uh, I would say, I don't know, it was kind of like 50-50, like, as far as, like, size of cemeteries go, the overwhelming majority uh, would be much smaller family cemeteries, I actually did do a little bit of research, I presented a paper at AGS, the AGS that we didn't realize that we were both at. <laughs> no, because we, we presented together. papers at the same time. I looked up after and so I was like, she was like, I was at that conference, and I was like, no, you weren't.
0: You weren't there. Yeah,
1: yeah so uh, there I I discussed uh, some of my cemetery marker research. As I said, my my master's thesis was very focused on family plots. I was interested to, to see on Fort Campbell, no family plots, really, and I think that that comes down to... Uh, because there aren't very many community-sized cemeteries on Campbell. There were a few, and they definitely started to pop up, um, you know, after the Civil War, early 20th century, um, when more of the communities kind of started to form. And it was more of a, you know, group of loosely, you know, knit communities kind of scattered throughout the landscape, as opposed to, a few well-to-do families who owned all the property and had their nice houses every so often and then everyone else is is tenant farms you know that to me also reflects the cemeteries so you'd have some very nice um you know beautiful marble markers and then you'd have some you know equally beautiful handmade concrete markers one of my favorite markers that i found was um a photo portrait marker Uh, so that I only found one, only found the one photo portrait marker that was actually in one of our larger community cemeteries that, that kind of got founded around the the turn of the 20th century. I also found some beautiful vernacular markers where, um, not really sure what was, it had glass impressed in it. And I would assume maybe a, a Bible verse or a piece of a Bible that was, um, under there the glass had subsequently been broken um but yes, yeah, some beautiful vernacular markers in the african-american cemeteries and you know not just just in the amount of time and care that that person is is putting into that marker you know the fact that you could see maybe like a thumbprint or you, know, you could see the work not that you couldn't see it in the other markers, but, you know, by that time, a lot of it was commercialized and, and mass produced for those marble markers. So, yes, they're beautiful, but they're a dime a dozen. Yes. So when I get to see a vernacular marker, even if it, it's just a plain concrete block with somebody's, you know, name in it, that was handwritten in there. You know, that that means something. Um, so, yeah, Campbell had all of the above.
0: I can hear the cat scratching itself on the this on the microphone. Jango. Hi, Jango. <laughs> All right, I think that, I, I think we covered, we did a pretty good job. Now, is yeah. there anything else that you can think of that you think that they, they should know?
1: Oh, I don't know. Um, I mean, really, yeah, I just hope that I can let everyone here know, you know, when you think U.S. Army, you definitely don't think cultural resource management. Um, but I hope that I can assure everyone that, from my experience, the Army definitely does everything they can to protect, you know, first of all, you want to know where it is. So as I said, every year they're, they're surveying more and more acres. You're going to find out more and more about Fort Campbell and all Army installations as the years go on. Um, so I just think it's important for everyone to know that they want to know where it is, what it is, and if it needs to be protected. And when it comes to cemeteries, they are protected they are
0: cared for and uh, I've often said this that uh, nobody organizes quite like the army does and you know when you talk about whether it's the repatriation of remains from you know all of the wars of the 20th century or it's the maintenance of national cemeteries they do it on such a grand scale but they do it very well because they do have that army protocol and there's a lot to be said for that. Yes, I I agree with
1: you. If you want it, if you want it done, the army can get it done. It might not be the quickest, but it'll get done. You know <laughs> the army way.
0: Well, thank you so much, Hillary. It makes me makes me miss having you in the office, but I don't blame <laughs> you for wanting to stay exactly where you are.
1: <laughs> yes, I I get a little you know lonely working from home. I pretty much work remotely now, and it's not just because of COVID. Um, just working remotely, so yeah, I get a little lonely, but uh then you know hopefully soon we'll have another gptq meeting right right over there and and (laughs) yeah we 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 have
0: these little cultural resource meetings where we learn about all sorts of new and exciting things Yes. and then afterwards we drink and then
1: we drink and that because you know that is what archaeologists
0: and historians do we we drink and we know things it's (laughs) you it's usually the archaeologist. i will say this the (laughs) lat the last one that we went to pre-covid I was the only historian there. It was me and about 40 archaeologists, and nobody drinks quite like archaeologists. So, <laughs> And, you know, I think that that is the most
1: important thing <laughs> that we can leave all of, all of your listeners with today. Absolutely. Well,
0: thank you so much, Hillary. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. I hope that all of you enjoyed that, and it gave you a little bit more insight into the realities of the army and cemeteries. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and feel free to follow along on social media at Tomb of the View podcast. But for now, have a great weekend. I'm Liz Clappen and this is Tomb with a View.